chapter 24. Lo, the Lord will lay waste the earth and empty it. He will disfigure its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be with priest as with people, with master as with servants, with mistress as with maid, with seller as with buyer, with lender as with borrower, with creditor as with debtor. When the earth is sacked, it shall be utterly ravaged. The Lord has given word concerning it. These chapters 24 through 27 comprise what's called the Isaiah Apocalypse because this seems to be speaking specifically about the latter days or the end time of the world, whereas other parts of Isaiah are not so specific about that. It's kind of like calling the revelation of John the Apocalypse of John because it deals specifically with the last days or the end of the world. And because this part of Isaiah's prophecy was not fulfilled before, it was relegated to that end time. However, in Isaiah's structure, this unit of chapters, 24 through 27, is an integral part of the rest of the book. What we've been reading so far ties in with what we're reading here, that this calamity or this judgment, this time of judgment, overtakes the whole world and all of the nations and all of the people, priests, master, servant, people, mistress, maid, buyer, seller, lender, borrower, creditor, debtor, everybody, everybody across the board. However, not so among the righteous, because these judgmental aspects deal only with the wicked. As we get into the passages that deal with the righteous and what happens to them, we see that there is a distinction drawn. Some of the movies see about these kind of worldwide destructive events don't seem to allow much hope for anybody, but Isaiah has built into his prophecies the deliverance aspect. There's always a redeeming factor in it all. So it is a worldwide destruction. This worldwide destruction is the same one that we've been reading about hitherto, beginning chapter 13. In fact, including the destruction that it talks about from the beginning of the book that overtake the people of God. It's all one of the same destruction in an end-time scenario. Here in these chapters, as in this verse, the destruction is more of a cosmic nature It deals more with cosmic destruction. It's similar to chapter 13 in that respect. The surface of the earth is going to be disfigured and the inhabitants scattered and the earth will be laid waste and emptied. That's like what we've read in chapter 13, which talks about the day of the Lord coming as the cruel outburst of anger and wrath to make the earth a desolation that sinners may be annihilated from it. The stars and constellations of the heavens will not shine when the sun rises, shall be obscured, nor will the moon give its light. There's going to be disturbance in the heavens when the earth is jolted out of place. All of this is in chapter 13. So it kind of carries on from there. It's part of the same scenario. When the earth is sacked, it shall be utterly ravaged. Chapter 24, verse 3. The Lord has given word concerning it. Verse 4. The earth shall pine away, the world miserably perish. The elite of the earth shall be made wretched. And in chapter 13, the earth and the world, in verses 9 and 11, were subjects of the destruction of Babylon. It's just that here Isaiah is giving just another view of it, another dimension, another aspect. Babylon is a type of the world. Here it's the world itself. And in these chapters also, the word city appears to epitomize the wicked. There's a wicked city, or the city of the wicked, And then there is also a city of the righteous as a counterpoint to it.
The earth shall pine away, the world miserably perish. Like people just pining away, eventually perishing and dying, because there's no hope for them. So will be the elite of the earth. The elite is, again, part of the humiliation theme that's all the way through. The elite of the earth shall be made wretched. The earth lies polluted under its inhabitants. Now it gives a rationale for all of this. They have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinances, set it not the ancient covenant. And so it brings covenant curses upon the people. The interesting thing is that it is the inhabitants of the world at large that are accused of breaking the laws and changing the ordinances, setting not the ancient covenant. The ancient covenant is the Lord's covenant with his people Israel. Why then would the inhabitants of the earth be implicated here? Well, in an end-time scenario, the Lord's people have been scattered all over the earth. They were exiled anciently, and in the meantime, they have occupied all of the nations of the world. There are inhabitants of Israel all over the world. And instead of helping the inhabitants of the world, or the nations of the world among whom they reside, among whom they abide, to convert to the gospel and to keep the laws of the covenant, they haven't done that. The point is that Israel is now scattered all over the earth, all over the world, and the covenant of God with Israel, with his people Israel, is known by the inhabitants of the earth. In spite of that, they haven't changed their ways. Those who have entered into the covenant have actually transgressed the laws, changed the ordinances, so that the laws of the covenant and the ordinances of the covenant are no longer pure. By changing things around, you set the covenant at naught. It's no longer what it should be. But the word covenant also is a metaphor describing the Lord's servant, so that their setting at naught the ancient covenant also means that they set the servant at naught. He personifies the covenant. He is the covenant. He's called the covenant to the people in chapters 42 and 49. In the book of Isaiah, you have that phenomenon of where the people choose darkness instead of light, or they choose the king of Assyria instead of the Lord's servant. And there's kind of a dichotomy among the people of which direction do they go. So this is part of that scenario, where they set the one at naught and uphold the other. Verse 6, the curse devours the earth, for those who dwell on it have incurred guilt. Because of it, the population of the earth shall be diminished, and little of mankind remain. So a covenant curse upon the people as a result of breaking the covenant and its large, massive population disappears. As in chapter 13, verse 12, mankind will be as scarce as fine gold. In fact, according to Isaiah's proportions, about 90% of mankind is destroyed in that day of judgment. Verse 7, The new wine withers on languishing vines, making all the light-hearted lament. The rhythm of drums ceases, the revelers' din stops, the pulsating of lyres comes to an end. Indicating that, as in other places, the people are Reverting to the pleasurable lifestyle, seeking their own pleasures rather than service of God. Like in chapter 5, verse 11, Woe to those who go after liquor as soon as they arise in the morning, who linger at night, parties inflamed by wine. There are harps and lyres, drums, flutes, and wine at their banquets, but they regard not what the Lord does, nor perceive his hand at work. So Israel and the world in general are in this state. And the Lord is going to bring those concerts and those parties and all of the uh, different ways of entertainment that people are so caught up with. It's going to make an end of that. Men no longer drink wine amid song. Liquor has turned bitter to drinkers. So there's lots of drinking going on, probably alcoholism, but 
the drinks that they're able to drink now are not exactly what they want. That lifestyle has brought its demise to these people. The towns of disorder are broken up. All houses are shuttered that none may enter. Outsiders heard the clamor for wine. All joy has become gloom. The earth's vitality is gone. So they're in a situation of siege or in wartime. People are afraid to go out of doors and everything is shuttered up so no one can come and go. The joy that has become gloom, we've seen that earlier where light becomes darkness and joy becomes misery and the Lord takes away his spirit and then there's nothing left. The earth's vitality is gone. There's no fertility anymore. Everything is just like it's depicted in those movies as far as the wicked are concerned. Havoc remains in the city. The gates lie battered to ruin. This is where the city is mentioned for the first time. And the city is that entity of people that epitomizes the wicked in the book of Isaiah. There are two cities and two women and two people, the wicked and the righteous. They're epitomized as a city. The city is Babylon, or some equivalent, as we have the other city, the city of Zion, or the city of the Lord. There is the harlot Babylon, and there is the virgin Zion. There are the Lord's righteous people and the wicked people of God and of the nations. This refers to the wicked. Havoc remains of the city, the gates lie battered to ruin by the enemy that's invaded the land, by the Assyrians, who have broken in and conquered the people. Then shall it happen in the earth among the nations as when an olive tree is beaten or as grapes are gleaned when the vintage is ended. So a worldwide event, again, this destruction is worldwide, but there is a redeeming factor. There are those who are left who are untouched. After the vintage is ended, the vintage is the great destruction or the harvest or vintage is their judgment. It's the great destruction caused by the Assyrians. But there are some left, called the gleanings, who survive. Then will these lift up their voice and shout for joy, and those from across the sea exult at the Lord's ingenuity. Meaning that the Lord's people are in two distinct places, those at home and those abroad. Isaiah identifies them as Zion and Jerusalem, two centers of God's people. If you look carefully at the way he uses those terms, they're not exactly one of the same place, nor are they synonymous of each other. Each one has its own rhetorical definition in the book of Isaiah. And will these lift up their voice? These, Elah in Hebrew also means gods or mighty ones, alluding to the elect. They lift up their voice and shout for joy. When everybody else has gone into gloom and doom, there are those who emerge from the gloom and doom, from their oppression, from their captivity and bondage and exile, for whom there is joy in that day, in the great reversal of circumstances that happens between the righteous and the wicked at that time. The voice is also a metaphor for the Lord's servant. They lift up their voice, or they sustain him. They sustain this one who's the voice of the righteous, or the Lord's mouth to his people, on a metaphorical level. Those from across the sea exult at the Lord's ingenuity. The Lord was ingenious in causing this destruction of the wicked so that the righteous might be delivered. The way that he orchestrated events in history bespeaks his divinity. Only God can organize human history in such a way that the end result proves to be redeeming for the righteous 
and damnatory for the wicked. Because of it, they will give glory to the Lord in the regions of sunrise, or the east, and in the isles of the sea, to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. Regions of sunrise and the isles of the sea incorporates other parts of the earth than just Palestine. In relation to Palestine, we would be in the isles of the sea, or the continents of the sea, and the regions of sunrise. And we would give glory to the Lord at that time, or those of us who survive, or for whom the Lord has prepared deliverance. From a sector of the earth we hear singing, Glorious are the righteous. So those who survive begin to hear about each other. They may have supposed that they were the only ones that were left alive because the destruction is worldwide and so devastating that they probably think, well, who else could possibly survive this? From the sector of the earth we hear singing. The singing is a constant motif through these chapters which talk about the Day of Judgment for the most part, but also about the salvation of the righteous out of it. And what characterizes the righteous is always joy and singing and exaltation, whereas among the wicked, it's silence and gloom and misery and weeping and wailing and so forth. Glorious are the righteous because the Lord has exalted them at the same time that he humiliated or brought the wicked to ignominy. That which was humiliated is now exalted. That which was exalted is now humiliated. So the righteous survive, and not just survive, but he lends them his glory, as it says later on in the book of Isaiah. He glorifies them. Whereas I thought, I'm wasting away, I'm weakening. Woe is me, the traitors have been treacherous, the turncoats have deceitfully betrayed. So those entities of God's people who thought they were the only ones left, who were betrayed by their fellows, probably by some of their own kind, by the wicked of God's people, and also by the Assyrians who launched a treacherous military attack upon the whole world and conquered it after they had made peace treaties. So all through this time of oppression, first of all, and wickedness, which brings upon them the Assyrian destruction, there are these people who, are, who seem to be the victims all the way through, but whom the Lord eventually delivers and saves, and they escape. But while they are in the midst of the oppression, they think, wow, how can we endure this? You know, I'm wasting away, I'm weakening. Can I be sustained through all of this? Amidst so much treachery and deceit and betrayal? And the answer is, yes, they can. All of the Lord's people are going through the same thing. Eventually, when they survive, then they meet up with each other, and everything is fine again. Verse 17, terrors and pitfalls and traps await you, O inhabitants of the earth. This is the inhabitants of the earth in general. Those who flee at the sound of terror shall fall into a pit, and those who get up from the pit shall be caught in a trap. For when the windows on high are opened, the earth shall shake to its foundations. And this is the lot of those who don't repent. We saw earlier that people fall into the trap The Lord of hosts is a rock of stumbling to his people. They stumble over him and they fall into the trap, talking about the Lord's own people. It says, To you he will be a sanctuary to the righteous, but to the two houses of Israel a stumbling block or obstructing rock and a snare catching unawares the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many shall stumble into them and when they fall shall be broken. When they become ensnared shall be taken captive. In chapter 8. So those are rhetorical links here with the wicked in general of the earth. The windows on high are opened, 
That's an interesting term. It's another one like the wise men that's been put into modern usage. The wise men in chapter 19. Today we talk about a window up in the sky and the atmosphere to let missiles in or out. You talk about a window, there's going to be a window open at such and such a time, so that's when the rocket has to go up and take the satellite up there. Or there's a certain window for the endeavor to come through and land back down on Earth. When the windows on high are open, the Earth shall shake to its foundation because that's when the attack is launched. It's when there's that window of opportunity and the Earth shakes to its foundation at the time of that horrible worldwide destruction. The Earth is jolted out of place by the anger of the Lord of hosts in the day of his blazing wrath, in chapter 13. The earth shall be crushed and rent, the earth shall break up and cave in, the earth shall convulse and lurch. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard, sway back and forth like a shanty, its transgressions weigh it down, and when it collapses it shall rise no more. So what falls in the book of Isaiah and collapses its Babylon? Babylon goes into the dust, no more to arise. So the wicked in general, it's talking about and also manifested physically in physical destruction. The drunkard imagery again indicates addiction, general state of wickedness, drunkenness among the people. They're not savvy to what's really going on. They've chosen their course in life. They've broken the Lord's covenant and now the consequences are upon them. There's really nothing that anybody can do about it when destruction is that horrendous and universal. In that day will the Lord deal on high with the hosts on high, verse 21, and on earth with the rulers of the earth. They shall be herded together like prisoners to a dungeon and shut in confinement many days as punishment. So all these people, including all those who come under condemnation, who are the inhabitants of the earth talked about, who also constitute greater or arch Babylon, they include hosts on high and also especially rulers upon the earth. Who would be the hosts in high? Well, they would be spirits or evil spirits or angels who are aiding and abetting the wicked. And the Lord brings them to task as well and binds them, uh, binds Satan's armies and Satan's hosts who are working behind the scenes to induce people to greater and greater wickedness. And also the rulers of the earth, in many instances, lead the people astray and abolish their traditional ways and bring confusion and they misrule and bring upon the people these very judgments. So they are especially dealt with and put in a prison or a dungeon, a spirit prison, as in chapter 14, because this happens by and large in the next world. Chapter 14, which is about the king of Babylon, when he goes down to the spirit prison or to the to Sheol or the underworld, it says, Sheol below was in commotion because of you, anticipating your arrival. That's when he died. On your account, she roused all the spirits of the world's leaders, causing all who had ruled nations to rise up from their thrones. All alike were moved to say to you, even you have become powerless as we are, you have become like us. So, this prisoners to the dungeon where they're shut in confinement many days as punishment refers to their spiritual demise after their deaths. Chapter 24, verse 23. The moon will blush and the sun be put to shame when the Lord of hosts manifests his reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and his glory in the presence of his elders. Now his elders are the counterpart of these wicked rulers. The Lord abolishes 
the wicked rule or the rule of the wicked and replaces it with the righteous rule of his servants, whom he calls his elders here. And these elders dwell in the Lord's presence, very much like Moses and the 70 elders went up on Mount Sinai and they ate bread in the presence of the Lord. Here it is upon Mount Zion and in Jerusalem where the Lord manifests his reign when he comes to rule upon the earth. And at that time, it says, the sun will be put to shame because of the brightness of his coming, because of the glory of the Lord's presence. Now that also alludes to the Lord's coming as a general event, not only the literal instance of his actual presence and coming, but generally the time period when the sun is darkened, as it says in chapter 13, verse 10, when the sun rises, shall be obscured, nor will the moon give its light. Stars and constellations of the heavens will not shine at that time when the earth is destroyed. And that destruction of the earth and of the wicked is the prelude to the actual physical coming of the Lord himself. The wicked are destroyed and the earth is cleansed so that the Lord may then come, come to the righteous and manifest his glory among them. He doesn't manifest his glory among the wicked. They never see the Lord's coming. They never see him at all. All they know is that there is war and destruction and they themselves are slain at that time. 